0: Welcome to the X Podcast, your complete source for crisis, emergency, business continuity and security preparedness interviews, news, and much more. Now your host, he creates chaos for a living, Rob Burton. And welcome to episode 93 of the Prepared X podcast. I'm your host, Rob Burton. And just before we get started, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by the International Crisis Management Conference. Uh, the conference this year, we're back in person, as you know, on June 7th and June 8th this year, down in the beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. So if you can make it down, we'd love to see you. If you're in the New England area or you'd like to fly in, uh, we'd love to get people back uh, around the conference table, if you will. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, this event uh, was, uh, has many sponsors this year. So we're looking forward to getting the sponsors uh, up to uh, Rhode Island as well. Uh, for more information on the seventh annual International Crisis Management Conference, uh, go to crisisconferences.com for more details. Okay. <clears throat> Today I'm joined by John Petrozelli, uh, who is the Director of Cybersecurity for TCG Network Services. Welcome, John.
1: Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no problem. Uh, before we get started, John, can you let our listeners know a little bit more about your career so far and what you do there at TCG?
1: Sure. Um, so I started my career as an Air Force intelligence officer, um, serving in Korea for 13 months as a uh, flight commander or information operations watch officer. I, um, I then moved to uh, still within the Air Force to support C-17 missions flying out of Charleston Air Force Base. Uh, the 14th airlift squadron, as well as a special operations low level program uh, until I left the Air Force uh, in 2002. Um, Had a couple years, a little bit of a rough transition from the military, uh, finding a good fit for me until I joined the FBI as an intelligence analyst in 2004. Um, And I had a 17 year career with the FBI as an intelligence analyst, then a supervisory intelligence analyst Chief Security Officer and Chief Operating Officer was the last position I held there before I retired uh, and moved to the Director of Cybersecurity at TCG Network Services. So my current job, I, uh, I handle cybersecurity for about 120 to 130 uh, clients under managed services. And then we have about another 170 or so that we do project work for, uh, kind of break-fix
0: project work. Excellent. Well, thanks for sharing that. And uh, I, I think back to when I uh, transitioned as well from the military uh, to uh, the civilian world. And uh, I also had a couple of years there where I was you know, kind of between, um, you know, not between jobs, but certainly, you know, trying to figure out, uh, you know, where, where to end up. And uh, so uh, I, that story resonates with me. Yeah. So, tough. yeah. So, for our listeners, John, can you let uh, you know? I always—it's uh, funny. Uh, this question's come up the last uh, three or four uh, podcasts that we've done, and I think it's a, a great way to get into you know know a little bit more about our speakers. Um, you know, for our listeners, can you let us know a little bit more about uh, the most challenging role that you've had professionally uh, and why?
1: Sure. So, um, when I was a again, when I went into the military, I was a as an intelligence officer. I was 23 years old and I volunteered to go to Korea. Uh, I ended up becoming a flight commander. And as, 20, as a 23 year old, I was managing uh, 35 people administratively and um, 70 people in our watch center. And of course we're Korea we're still in a wartime environment. So, uh, you know, we were um, 35 kilometers and six minutes by plane from the North Korean, South Korean border. So um, there's a lot of pressure for a young kid. Um, the biggest pressure for me was learning how to lead in an environment like that where, um, you know, most of the people uh, had either more degrees than me or, you know, had 10 to 20 years more experience than I did. uh, And I was leading them. Um, So it was a really big challenge. Uh, I was a very black and white, you know, kid coming out of school, coming out of Air Force ROTC. And I had to really learn how to live in the gray area. and I had to earn their respect, so yeah. uh, it was pretty difficult uh, and challenging for me.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I have a colleague who uh, also went to Korea um, early early on uh, in his career. So, and uh, he shared a few uh, similar stories to that. So, uh, uh, thanks for sharing. Um, in, in terms of, I know this podcast, uh, we're going to get into uh, the Boston bombings here, which um, you know, I know you had. Um, a role in um, at that time uh, with the FBI. Can you just let us know a little bit uh, in terms of what your role was in Boston, um, you know, dur- during that uh, during that attack?
1: Sure, yeah, so, so right prior to the attack, I was a supervisory intelligence analyst. I managed uh, a lot of, all of our criminal programs basically. So we would provide support to the special agents who mm-hmm. were out on the streets, you know, they would be the ones who were uh, managing sources, interviewing uh, victims or witnesses um, and and gathering information to support their cases, we would be supporting the cases from behind the scenes, looking across cases, looking at um, connections between cases, and trying to identify potential subjects of investigation from the information we were getting from the agents. So my team was in charge of that. Um, But what actually prepped me a lot for the marathon bombing was I I supervised uh, these analysts who were working, you know, gangs, organized crime, uh, drugs, and we had a lot of gang takedowns, um, drug takedowns, and so um, I actually worked uh, to coordinate a lot of our command posts. Mm-hmm. So I would I would essentially handle the command and control um, to support the supervisory special agent, so he could focus on the actual investigation. I would set up the command posts behind the scenes, and so we would, um, you know, basically. Um, practice what we preached, and we would do like a training a couple of days prior to the command post, uh, so that we were confident on execution day that we knew what we were doing, where everybody should be, whose roles were, um, what, and um, so we we could eliminate some of the early ner- ner- uh, nervousness, you know, during those command posts during the actual takedown when lives were at stake. Because typically the people we were, you know, going to arrest were. Uh, violent crime, uh, or gang or drug dealers with weapons. Yeah. And so we typically had, you know, SWAT involved, um, as well as street agents. So we needed to make sure that we were as close to perfect as possible, uh, for all of those. So we did a lot of, um, I, I actually tried to handle it as best I could, like a military operation. Yeah. We did a lot of Intel prep for the battle space. The agents and analysts would put a ton of hours into preparation for the actual takedown day. Um, And, and through that, uh, I I made a lot of contact with, you know, local, state, uh, and federal partners. And that helped me a lot during the actual uh, bombing, because instead of just like sharing business cards, uh, I actually had relationships with these people. And when I needed something from them, we could BS a little bit, but then, you know, get right down to business.
0: Yeah, that, that's critical. Yeah, we, we talk about that in in the crisis management world here at Preparedex uh, about you know the time spent ahead of uh, anything uh, happening is time well spent, and uh, you know developing those relationships and sp- spending as much as time as much time as you can to develop those. And of course, you know time time is our enemy. Um, so if you can get together a few minutes every so often, uh, it's certainly valuable time.
1: Yeah, no, it was really it was really critical, and uh, my friend George always talks about you know. When a crisis hits, that's not the time to share business cards.
0: it's a classic line that uh, is used very often. Um, yeah. uh, just before we move on from this one, uh, for our, our listeners that uh, maybe are from outside of uh, the US, uh, could you just uh, explain? You know, you were in the Boston um, uh, FBI. So, what what region does that cover? Just let our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, the landscape.
1: Sure. So uh, the Boston FBI covers four states: uh, New Hampshire. Maine, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. So we have, um, you know, a, a pretty good sized field office uh, centered in Chelsea, Massachusetts. Um, which, for anybody in Massachusetts, knows it's basically on the, the other side of the world uh, because it's separated by a major river and some some choke points from the city of Boston. But um, at the time we were in downtown Boston, so it helped with the actual response for the the marathon bombing. Um, but. Uh, we cover everything within those four states. Um, so, or the FBI covers everything within those four states, all crimes um, that would be handled under FBI uh, federal jurisdiction and interstate commerce.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, You you touched on um, command and control a little bit um, just before there. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the command center that was set up uh, for the marathon? Um, You know, I I believe, um, you know, um, you know, you know, in terms of prep for the marathon, I'd heard some stories that uh, there'd been some prep done by certain agencies within the city. Um, You know, what other partners were there and, and, you know, kind of the whole um, location as it relates to the command center.
1: Sure. So, um, the uh, the Boston police uh, handled the majority of the marathon work, and of course the state police helped as well. Um, what what was really complicated about the marathon, and and still is to this day, is that there are basically uh, eight or nine jurisdictions that the marathon route traverses through. Um, so, as you start from Hopkinton and go in toward Boston, you've got to deal with, you know, the the um, each municipality is responsible for for their own route and then there's the state police as well Um, and the fbi had a supporting role in that we were not really um, you know heavily involved in the in the marathon prior to that day Um, we always supported with uh, crisis management teams and small and a small fbi presence but it was primarily the the police departments and the state police that handled security and um, your protection of everybody on the route, as well as the bystanders. Um, so during that day, actually, the, the FBI, uh, I'm sorry, the Boston police had a command post set up in downtown Boston. Of course they had you know tents and, and um, uh, any kind of medical tents set up to support the runners. Um, so there was a lot of that in place, but the, we were actually in the middle of a, um, at that time, we were actually in the middle of a, uh, uh, a Holocaust presentation, which I'll, I'll get into in a little bit later as far as, you know, what our response was. But um, it was it was we were just in a supporting role, basically.
0: Right. Right. Um, in terms of uh, exercises, I, I know, you know, you're familiar with you know, drilling and, and planning. So uh, had you drilled or exercised or at least had uh, coordinated meetings prior?
1: Uh, yeah, so as I had mentioned, we we had the gang takedown experience that prepared us a lot to deal with the local and state police from a criminal side, um, but our JTTF, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, that's a that's a group uh, of partners um, that includes local, state, federal partners working with the FBI, and the JTTF had a really good crisis manager who had um, routine meetings. We have quarterly meetings. Uh, Uh, usually led by the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, And um, we actually had an exercise for several days in September of 2012, simulating a terrorist attack and setting up our command post as we would to actually um, respond to a real incident. So um, that was, a. it it turned out to be really fortuitous that we did that. Again, the crisis manager, um, Brad, was a, you know, incredibly... uh, well thought person who who did a really good job of trying to prep us for any kind of incident and and luckily we had just done that about um you know seven months prior
0: right right yeah good to you know have some experience to uh, help you you know um with these uh with these events experience through you know obviously real events or or, or exercises so thanks for sharing that Let's move on. Uh, once the first device went off, uh, what was the immediate action uh, from the unified command?
1: Yeah, so, uh, so as I had alluded to before, so we, uh, we, were, we actually had a, a speaker in from Harvard talking to us about the Holocaust uh, at around the time when the bombing occurred. So it was uh, kind of something that you would see out of a movie where, you know, I, I again, just to give my personal perspective on this which uh, again all this is my personal perspective but um, i was watching the uh, we were listening to the presentation and i st- i saw the the crisis manager get a a phone call so he gets up walks out of the room and i'm like okay that's the crisis management supervisor then i see the counterterrorism supervisor get up after a phone call walk out of the room and i see the evidence response team coordinator get up and walk out of the room so clearly, there's something going on, and right. um, you know, at this point, you know, people are starting to look around and and figure out like something's going on. Then we started to see members of our uh, evidence response team and the counterterrorism squads, you know, get up and walk out of the room. So by the time the um, the, the presentation was done, uh, one of our assistant uh, special agents in charge came back in and basically was like, okay anybody have any questions and looked at us like nobody asked questions so (laughs) so uh, so we ended up uh, not asking any questions Um, we you know thank the participant for coming in and and briefing us about um, just a reminder of you know what horrible uh, situation happened with the holocaust and then as soon as he left the room the assistant special agent in charge um, talked to us about what happened and we jumped into prep mode so Uh, We in about an hour and a half set up our command post the way we had done in September, 2012. And as far as unified command, you know, at that time BPD, Boston police was handling um, the response right out of their location uh, at their marathon command post. And eventually once we had this set up, we started um, the command post, we moved the command post activity over to the FBI
0: office. Right. Great. Great. Thanks for sharing that. It just, it just triggered a story with me. I was, I was down here in Newport at the time and I had a friend who was, um, on a rugby tour and he had some officers uh, from Sanders in the UK and they were playing rugby at a few uh, universities up in, in Boston. And, um, yeah, they were out for the day, just walking around Boston when when this happened. And you know, this is a veteran of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan at this time. And uh, here he is on the streets of uh, Boston, and he actually helped uh, with some of the first response um, to to the uh, obviously the double bombings. Uh, I think it was like ten seconds or fifteen seconds between the bombs there. So uh, uh, he had he had to set up his own unified command to uh, uh, to try and bring the uh, I think it was like fourteen or sixteen of them traveling, and uh, some of them didn't even have phones. So uh, you know, they they back at the hotel eventually but uh, it took some time for for him to you know uh, understand um, you know all these guys were okay and they, they ended up being okay
1: yeah rob i'll tell you it was amazing watching the response and that's really where that boston strong came from was yeah. the absolute outpouring of support from people who ran toward danger i mean it was unbelievable and and some of them are veterans um and soldiers who were either on active duty or, you know, just returned from a war. Right. Um, but others were just, you know, first responders or yeah. doctors, nurses, um, and, and then regular citizens who were running over to help others. And it was just really unbelievable. Of course, we didn't see that during the, uh, right. during the initial phase when we were responding. But, uh, I mean, it's just an incredible outpouring of support from the people who ran into danger. And um, it, it was just amazing here.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll have to use Boston Strong. I've not seen that tag for a while. So we'll use that when we when we post this around. So thanks for the reminder there as well. Um, Okay, moving on. uh, What do you remember about the days uh, that followed in terms of the manhunt? Because I know it was a few days um, to catch up with the second terrorist.
1: Right. So so they were actually both uh, at large um, in the initial days. Oh, that's the initial four days. So from from the 15th to the overnight 18th into the 19th they were both at large and uh you know different from so many other bombings both in the u.s and elsewhere this was a homicide bomber or at least one homicide bomber versus suicide bombers so the stakes are really high and the pressure is really on and um so it was it was major it was a real challenge from a leadership perspective to keep our people um, everybody was motivated, but to keep them focused on, okay, don't listen to anything from the outside world. You've got to listen to the information we have here. Yes. Um, because there was a, a ton of opportunities for people to hear misinformation. Yep. Um, and there were leaks coming out of um, you know, the command post, which then the media was reporting on. A lot of times the media reported things falsely. Um, so there was a, a real lot of challenge around that. Um, and the biggest thing I remembered from there was, I would not believe something until I saw it in writing, because there's so much misinformation out there that we really needed to focus on, okay, where did this information come from? What's the source of it? How good is the source? You know, how authoritative is the information? And so uh, we tried to to really hone in on on the good stuff versus so much misinformation out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, you know, it's it's a great lesson there for all crisis teams uh, in terms of information management, right? So you've got a tremendous amount of information coming in 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 these high stress situations. Um, You know, of course, you know, a dynamic environment and it's processing that information, right? Analyzing that information, which is what, you know, what you do and what your your world uh, was at that time. Um, But you you made a great point there, which uh, I hope our listeners uh, can take away. In terms of uh, you know their crisis teams, no matter how you know large or small the incident is, um, th- there will be those uh, pieces of information that come in uh, that are just noise, and you have to be able to you know uh, be confident enough to uh, process that information, analyze it, go away, work on it, and come back and, and filter out all that. And that's very challenging. And it's certainly, I'm sure it was tremendously challenging uh, in this instance.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and. You know, we had, we had a really good team of people. I mean, the FBI has an incredible group of people, but again, our partners were amazing as well. The state police, um, the Boston police, the local PDs that helped us and the federal partners, everybody tried to send, you know, their best people um, to, to help us to, to solve this. So it was amazing and we couldn't have done, the FBI couldn't have done what it did without the support of the local uh, state police and our federal partners. Um, but also something I wanted to mention, too, that I hadn't mentioned yet was, you know, the impact on businesses was absolutely um, stunning in the in the area of the crime scene, you know, which was multiple city blocks. And for a long period of time, those uh, the city blocks were shut down so people couldn't get to their businesses. And that's where, you know, business continuity in terms of response to a crisis like that um, is really critical because uh, you know let's just say that you uh have a you know, nowadays you have a company and your server's in a in a central location in the city um and you know something like that occurs or you can't get to that server and there's server issues like how do you handle that and that's right. where you know business continuity and having a backup plan is so critical and a lot of those businesses um they were very supportive, but, you know, it definitely interrupted what they were doing. Um, of course, there were some retail. There was a lot of retail shops in the area, but um, but there were also other businesses that basically were disrupted for several weeks until the crime scene was um, was cleared, yeah. uh, which is which is quite, quite devastating for a business.
0: Yeah, we had uh, Ed Davis, the former police commissioner, um, speak uh, probably about four or five years ago now when we did a a. a, a Uh, conference in Boston. And, um, you know, he was talking about uh, those partnerships as well and and how critical um, they were and how well they came together. So, um, you know, um, it it sounds like uh, you had the same opinion there.
1: I did. Yeah. There was, there were, you know, of course, there's always egos in situations, but really a lot of people, just the majority of people put their egos aside and we all had a a unified mission get this done, find these people, we, at the time, didn't know whether it was one or more until we started to get video in. And again, that was Boston police, FBI, state police going door to door to these yep. businesses or reaching out to the businesses to collect uh, surveillance videos that were in the area around the crime scene. So uh, is you know really critical that we had good partners to, um, to be able to, to handle all that work.
0: Sure. Okay, great. All right. As we start to wrap up here, we always like to end uh, with what our guest speaker's perspective is on exercises. uh, And uh, what's yours? Why are they important?
1: Yeah, so I mean, what I could, you know, what I'd like to leave people with is the idea of why business continuity is so important. Um, Again, you know, for for the military, for uh, law enforcement, for federal agencies, um, state agencies, it's really important to have a plan and exercise it. Um, and you know you can, you can base uh, what happened on past events and try to plan for those, but you really need to plan for the unknown. Um, the marathon bombing was quite different from a lot of other uh, domestic terrorism attacks um, as well as you know some of the attacks that occurred overseas. So uh, you, you know, if someone was to plan for what happened with those previous attacks, they could have been left unprepared for the future and of course you can't always plan for everything in the right. unknown but right. but knowing you know what your plan looks like having a backup figuring out how to continue business um of course with the pandemic things are might be a little bit easier for people because people have already started to exercise remote work and things like that but um but again looking to past events for somewhat of a guide close but really trying to plan on what affects your business the most And what what could affect your business the most is really critical. Um, Identifying roles and responsibilities for your employees uh, and your teams before a crisis Mm -hmm. is absolutely crucial, as you know, because if not, um, you know, now you're wasting valuable time trying to figure out who's doing what. And then um, last thing I'd say is accounting for people, you know, your facilities, your assets having an alternate business location or a remote work plan in place uh, that includes using like a virtual private network. Um, You know, those are really critical uh, nowadays, particularly when we're dealing with, you know, current events today and and the potential for escalation, uh, you know, really worldwide. So, um, you know, having accounting for people, facilities, assets, and, and figuring out what your alternative business location or alternative backups would be are so crucial.
0: Sure. Great. Well, um that's fantastic information and I uh, appreciate um you ending with that great episode today. Um John, thanks for joining us from Boston. Thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, do you have any final comments, John, before we head out here uh, for our listeners? Uh, if they want to contact you, can they do that and how do they, how do they get a hold of you?
1: Sure. Um uh, yeah, uh, best is probably just hit me up on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, uh, I think I don't know if you can put the uh, the link to my uh, yep, profile in the podcast yep. notes, but yeah, that would be a great way to reach out. Um, I've I've had a lot of great experiences with um, people who I have mentored and who have mentored me um, through LinkedIn and elsewhere. So you know, anyone looking for tips on you know the difficult transition I had with the military and how they you know can prep for getting out, I'm happy to talk to people about that. Um, and of course, you know, you can look up TCG um, Network Services. We do a lot related to uh, business continuity, crisis management when it comes to incident response as well.
0: Great. Well, uh, thank you very much again uh, for your time today, John. And uh, we look forward to uh, chatting again with you soon.
1: Thanks, Robert. I really enjoyed it. It was awesome.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks everyone. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, episode 93, please feel free to share it with your network. Of course, uh, any comments uh, via any of the uh, podcast outlets where you're listening to this, uh, we'd love to hear back from you. If you're listening via our website, uh, drop us a comment in the comment section underneath uh, this podcast. We appreciate your time. Thanks everyone. And uh, we'll be in touch again soon with episode 94. Take care.